Well, welcome, Eric. We're glad to have you here. And it's a, a, a candidating sermon is a little strange, but mostly we want to hear from God's word, and we mm. know that's what you're here to do. So welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Before we open up God's word together, I would invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, we rejoice today that King Jesus came into this world, righteous and humble and having salvation. Thank you that when he returned to you, he did not leave us alone, but he gave us the Holy Spirit, and we have your word. So we do ask now that your spirit would take your word and bring it to bear powerfully upon each of us. We ask that you do a mighty, gracious work that would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. In what ways do you think are important to grow as a church? I can think of many different answers that might be given in response to that question. We need more prayer, more evangelism, to be involved more in one another's lives, more compassionate outreach to the poor and needy, to be more worshipful as a body, more care within the people of the church. We need to do more with missions to the unreached peoples of the world. The list could go on and on. Uh, but most importantly, we need to see what the Bible commends and says what ought to characterize the church of God and let that set our priorities. So this morning, we're looking at Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for the church at Philippi. If you've read through the New Testament, you might be familiar with the fact that the Apostle Paul often begins his letters to churches with a section like this, with thanksgiving for them. But when we look at Philippians, we see a church that he especially rejoices over. Some people call it the, the letter of joy. And he says this right up front in verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Wow. You know, wouldn't you love to have the Apostle Paul write that way to you? That every time he remembers you, it's with joy? It's not to say that the Philippian church was without problems. There are false teachers and opponents that are coming up against them. Paul names two women who are at odds with each other. He exhorts the church on, on various things, such as humility, as we heard earlier. But even so, as you read Philippians, you get a sense that this church holds a special place in the heart of the apostle. You can hear it in his repeated expressions of joyful commendation. And so we, as a church, ought to learn from the commendable Christianity of these Philippians. What did they get right that drew forth such a response from Paul? And I want to argue that what brought the apostles so much joy over the Philippian church is that their Christianity had a distinctly gospel shape to it. That is to say, the gospel had shaped the faith of the Philippian believers in a distinct way. 
And from the way that Paul gives thanks for them and prays for them at the beginning of his letter, there's four truths that I want to draw out for us as a church today. You can see them in your bulletin there. Uh, The first truth I want to look at is that joyful Christian partnership centers on the gospel. So if we look at the reason that Paul gives for his joy and thanksgiving for the Philippians, he says in verse 5 that because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's the reason why he's so joyful in giving thanks to God for them. The believers in Philippi have been joining together with Paul in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, we know a bit of what he's talking about there because the beginning of this church in Philippi is recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. There you can read of Paul receiving a vision of a Macedonian man urging him to come there. So he does. He, he goes to a leading city of Macedonia, Philippi. And what he does when he arrives is he looks for a gospel opportunity. And the one that he finds is women who are gathered by the river for prayer on the Sabbath. And so he, he goes to them and proclaims the gospel. And it says there in Acts 16 that as Paul preaches, the Lord graciously opens the heart of a woman named Lydia to believe his message. She's the first convert in Philippi. Later, Paul and his partner Silas are beaten and thrown in jail for disturbing the city when a controversy arose over a demon that he had cast out. But even through their suffering, the gospel continues to go forth. It comes to the jailer and his family. And they also believe and are baptized. Well, that's that's how the Philippian church came to be. So when Paul says, from the first day until now, we know what he's talking about. People heard the gospel from Paul. They believed it by God's grace. So this church that he's writing to then is first-generation Christians. Their parents did not know the gospel of Christ, but they do and they believe it. And from the beginning... The Philippians had joined together with Paul in his ministry, his gospel ministry. So after he left that city, after he left Philippi, they continued a gospel witness in their own city. But they also prayed for the Apostle Paul and his ministry. They financially supported him and his work in other regions. In fact, in Philippians 4.15, he tells them, he said, When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Brothers and sisters, what we are seeing here is much more than Paul simply being happy that the Philippian church is a long-term financial donor to his ministry. Rather, what had happened was this. The gospel took root among These in the Philippian church, it it formed the church. They took to heart the message of salvation that was brought to them by Paul. They believed what he said about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That he paid for their sins on the cross so that by faith in him, they're forgiven. They receive new life. The Philippians cherished this good news. 
and the gospel then defined them as a church. It reshaped their understanding, their desires, their priorities. And you can see that in the way that they partnered with Paul in his gospel endeavors. So this brings great joy to the apostle, their gospel partnership. Now most of you are aware that after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he gave to the church the Holy Spirit to empower his people to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this has continued not only through the first century, but down through the ages until today. We're in the same situation. The gospel must still advance today among our families, among our neighbors and our towns that we live in, our workplaces, our schools, among the nations. We have, we're in the same situation as the Philippian church. We have to see the gospel move forward. But how is it that we think about our Christianity? Are we thinking mainly in terms of me as an individual believer and, and my personal relationship with God? That is important, but there's more to it than that. Does the exercise of your faith mainly consist in coming here Sunday mornings, going home, coming back next Sunday, and doing it all over again? Well, there's more to it than that. And I think we can see this from the example of the Philippian church. That we who believe the gospel share in a joy that we have together, a joy in the salvation of Christ as his people. So then the church is made up of people who have fellowship with one another in the gospel and then who partner in the gospel to see it advance in the world. I think this is wrapped up in the stated mission of this church, strengthening the church gathered to be the church scattered for the glory of Christ. That's why you say that you exist, so I would commend you in that. Uh, that's in line with the way that the Philippian church operated. The key to joyful Christian partnership and sustaining it both within the local church and on a larger level as we send and uphold missionaries is that we all share in the same gospel of Christ through it's what God has given us to have uh, and the gospel then changes us and makes us missionaries in the world. So then when you, when you see this kind of partnership that we're seeing here in the Philippian church, when you experience that, as I hope that you do here at Valley Bible Church, thank God for it. This is the work of God in the church. You see how the apostle rejoices so much over what he's seeing among the Philippians. We should rejoice too in as much as that grace has been shared with us as well and seek to cultivate it all the more. Well, second truth, then, that I want to draw from this passage is that Christian confidence rests upon God's faithful gospel work. So if you look at verse 6, Paul gives us the basis for his joyful thanksgiving. So why is it that he thanks God for their gospel partnership? Why doesn't Paul say to the Philippian church, thank you for your gospel partnership? Well, the answer is that Paul knows that 
this good that's coming from them is properly attributed to God. So he thanks God for it. He says there, again, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came, the Son of God in human flesh. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. And he willingly chose death. He offered himself as the spotless Lamb of God, the only one sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins as he suffered and died. And he rose from the dead. He was victorious over death itself. And we're, we're celebrating these events, particularly at this time of year, with the Passion Week, the Last Supper, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. And yet, in order for that gospel, those events that took place, to be effective for any of us, it has to be personally applied to us. This is what happened in Philippi when God graciously opened Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. He overcame her resistance so that she believed. It is, as it says in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. So friends, in, in order to respond to the gospel call in repentance and faith, God must graciously raise us from spiritual death. If, if you don't believe that, just go to a cemetery nearby and, and preach the gospel to see what kind of response you'll get. It's, it's an illustration of a spiritual reality is that apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead and we need to be raised from it. And the fact is that our act of faith in believing the gospel is itself a gift from God. Therefore, we can't boast in ourselves for our faith. Paul has learned this from the gospel itself, from his own experience, if, if you consider how he came to believe in Christ on the road to Damascus. He knows that true conversion is the work of God. So then if you are saved today, well, thank God for it. It's his work. If this is all new to you and unfamiliar, and you realize you've not yet experienced salvation, well, keep listening to the gospel message. Cry out to God and ask for him to save you through Jesus Christ. You can't do it yourself. That's the first part of what he's saying here, that, that God is the one who began a good work in you. And Paul knows that God is faithful. So this is his confidence, that he who began a good work in you will most assuredly bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And to know what he's talking about there, we have to understand God's work both at a historical level and at a personal level. On the historical level, Jesus came into this fallen world as the long-awaited Messiah. He brought the redemption that God had promised for his people. And yet after Jesus' resurrection, when he ascended into heaven, he left with a promise. The promise was that he was going to return a second time. 
So Jesus is coming back. This is the hope of the believer. The Bible speaks of this great and awesome day of the Lord when God would come in final judgment on the world and with final salvation for his people. And we learn through the New Testament that the coming, the second coming of Christ brings about that day. So Paul calls it the day of Christ. This is when we will be brought before God in salvation. Those who are in Christ by faith will experience a final vindication and the fullness of salvation. On the flip side, it is also when those who are at present getting away with their evil deeds, if they do not repent, they'll be brought to complete justice before God at that day. So there's there's big realities coming. That's the historical level of what he's talking about, the the events that are going to take place when Jesus returns. We also have a personal level to look at here. The personal level, we have to look at our experience of salvation. At the moment you begin believing in Christ, you stand justified before God. That is, your sins are fully forgiven. And God views you as having the righteousness of Christ. Amazing. Yet in practice, you still sin. It's not the same as before you believed in Christ because now you have the power to obey and to say no to sin. And your life as a Christian is characterized, it should be at least, by a striving after holiness before the Lord. And over time, by God's grace, you do make progress in that. Yet even so, you are not yet perfect. Even at the end of your life, you'll be far from perfect still. So when do we as believers become perfect? You might want to say, at death, when I go to be with the Lord. And that's partly right, but there's more to it than that. You will be finished with sin at that point in time. But you might remember that your body will be lying in the grave. So, the truth is that we are finally made perfect or complete in body and soul at the resurrection. When does that take place? At the second coming of Christ. So that's where the historical level and the personal levels come together. The good work of salvation that God began in you, of saving you for himself, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, this day that we're awaiting. Or we can say it another way. One of the things that Jesus will do when he returns is to bring your salvation to its fullness. It will be complete. And this means, dear brothers and sisters, that As Paul says in verse 6, our salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. It is, as the prophet Jonah declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. What does this mean? Well, listen to this and take hope. It means that the outcome of your faith is ensured by the rock-solid, unfailing faithfulness of God that not comforting? It's not like those building projects that you occasionally see 
where the work gets 20 or 30% done and it's abandoned. God leaves no unfinished work. Now, lest you misunderstand the implications of that, it does not mean that you should become lazy in your faith. No, it's quite the opposite. Rather, knowing that the end is guaranteed should drive you forward in your faith. We can say that your confidence in God, that he's going to bring you to the finish line of this race, is what makes you run all the harder. It strengthens your legs so that you can push forward to make it to the end. So Christian confidence rests upon God's faithful gospel work. Both his gospel work objectively in what was accomplished by Christ in history, but also his gospel work as applied to and worked out in your life as a believer. The third truth I want you to see here is a fellowship in the gospel is characterized by deep Christian affection. So in the second half of verse 7, if you look at that, Paul returns to this fellowship that he shares with the Philippians in the gospel. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace. That word partakers is very closely related to partnership that we saw in verse 5. And what he's saying is that these believers in Philippi share with him in the gospel of God's grace. What the gospel does for you is it reconciles you, a sinner, to God who is holy. And what puts you at enmity with God was your sin and your rebellion against him. And on account of that, God's wrath was settled against you. But when you became united to Christ by faith, these things are resolved. Your sins are forgiven because Jesus has satisfied God's wrath against you. You're given a, a new nature as a Christian, a heart that loves God instead of rebelling against him. So thus you're, you're reconciled to God and welcomed into the fellowship that he has within himself, within the Trinity. This reconciled relationship with God is now the most important thing about you. It far exceeds the importance of your family, your upbringing, your culture, your ethnicity, your economic means, your career, your social status. All of that stuff is secondary to the reconciled relationship that you have with Jesus Christ and to God. So then, when you have a group of people who have been reconciled to God and who are together, we call that the church. And in the church, you find an amazing reality. The reality is that we have a unique fellowship with one another. You might be familiar with stories of men who served together in World War II. And as a result of their shared experience side by side in combat, they felt a deep kinship with one another for the rest of their lives. In fact, it was reported in the news, some of you might have heard this past Tuesday, that the last of the famous Doolittle Raiders had passed away. 
If you don't know about their role in the war and their bombing of Tokyo, I'd encourage you to read about it. But needless to say, their shared experience in the war set something forward for them as a group. It gave them a fellowship, a special bond that they had with them, with each other rather, for the rest of their lives. So they would gather regularly for reunions. They gave a toast each year with special goblets. There was a fellowship they shared because of what they went through together. Well, our fellowship in Christ is somewhat like that, but immeasurably greater. Believers are closer than family. That's why it's common to hear in the body of Christ that people call one another brother and sister. I have members of my immediate family that I grew up with who are unbelieving. And though I've known them for multiple decades, as long as they remain unbelieving, my fellowship with any of you who believe can be immediately greater, more significant, ultimately more meaningful. And why is that? It's because ours is a gospel fellowship. Because Paul and the Philippians share in the same gospel, though they're apart as he's in prison writing this letter to them, they have a fellowship with the apostle, a fellowship that even includes his imprisonment, as he says there, his defense of the gospel, as it's railed against, as he's accused, and as God is misrepresented, as he has to defend it, and as he confirms the gospel through faithfully proclaiming it. So whether Paul is in chains or freely ministering, the Philippian church is with him. They're with him in spirit because they have this fellowship as believers. And one way that sharing such fellowship in the gospel is displayed is through a deep Christian affection. So Paul says in verse 7 that it is right for him to feel this way about them. Because, he says, I hold you in my heart. In verse 8, he even calls upon God as witness to testify. He says, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, rather. The gospel of Christ is the greatest manifest manifestation of how God, from deep within his heart, loves his people. If you want to see God's love, look to the gospel of his sending of his son Jesus for us. And Paul says that he cares for the Philippian church with that same affection. So he, he gets it from the gospel and he cares for them. So where does deep love for fellow believer come from in the church? It comes from God's love for us in Christ. So this, this gospel affection that we're reading about here that Paul has for the church should also be true for us as brothers and sisters. Do you ever wonder why it's no fewer than five times in the New Testament that you come upon a command to greet one another with a holy kiss? What's a show of affection that's fitting for the saints of God? So what about you? A kiss in particular might be more fitting in some cultures than others. But church, when you come together, 
Do you show your affection for each other? Or do you try to keep others at arm's length? Or keep things at a, a comfortable distance? Are you somewhat guarded around others within the church? Well, it shouldn't be that way. This is our family. It's our closest relationships that we have. Someone who visits here ought to see that, that this is your family. So when one of you is sick or in need, others within the church should be the first to exercise care. The disciples of Jesus are recognized by their love for one another. And let me just affirm that my family and I have already experienced some of the affection of this church over the past few days. And we praise God for that. But if you're convicted that you need to grow in that, in, in Christian affection, I would encourage you that the way you can grow is to cultivate deeper gospel fellowship with one another. So just practically, that may mean that you don't let your conversations with others in the church be mainly about the weather, sports, politics, the activities of your kids, or, or whatever else. Rather, let there be a gospel focus to your relationships within the church. That takes intentionality, and it's going to take a little bit for that to feel natural. But if you begin to regularly go to that deeper spiritual level with one another, your gospel-driven affections for each other will grow. You can watch it happen. And as it does, that's worth rejoicing in. Rejoice in the fellowship that we have with one another. It's something that cannot exist outside of Christ. And why? Well, it's not that the fellowship of unbelievers is impossible. There's close relationships outside the church. It's rather that the fellowship of those who've been made right with God, who are also reconciled to each other, is qualitatively different. It's a heavenly fellowship, we could say. And it is a foretaste of what we will experience for eternity in heaven. So our reconciliation with God has massive implications into our relationships with each other. That is why fellowship in the gospel should be characterized by a deep Christian affection. The fourth truth I want to highlight from this passage is that growth in gospel love is preparation for the day of Christ. So in, in verse 9 and verse 10 and 11, we get Paul's explicit prayer for the Philippian church. There's three components you can easily see in it. Love, knowledge and discernment, and holiness. So Paul prays, he says, that your love may abound more and more. It's the first component. More love. But he wants it along with a second component, knowledge and all discernment. And then the third component comes in verse 10. This is the component of holiness. And it comes as the desired result of the first two. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now we can restate what Paul is praying for here in other words. 
He's saying, I pray, Philippians, that the gospel-based love of God that is in you would increase all the more. Love for God, love for his church, love for the lost. But this love must be a deep love, characterized by the knowledge of God through Christ, the wisdom that comes from him. So, Philippians, may God cause these things to play out in your lives in such a way that you know what is truly important and you're able to live faithfully with integrity before God. O church, in, in contrast with the world, may you approve what is truly excellent. May you neither stumble nor cause others to stumble, living lives of holiness before God. That's his prayer. And the goal is that the redeemed would be made ready for the day of Christ, for his return. In verse 6, Paul expressed his confidence that God will surely bring their salvation to fullness on that day. But here he's speaking from a practical standpoint of how to get there. How is it that we make it to that day? You see, in addition to judgment, Jesus is coming back specifically for something he desires. That's his church. He's looking for a bride that is purified and beautified herself, made herself ready for her bridegroom. So what being ready for the day of Christ looks like is described for us in verse 11. It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, our goal is not only to reach the day of Christ, but even more, it's to present to him lives that increasingly bear the evidence that we've been redeemed by him, that we, we look like him and resemble him. The fruit of righteousness is that which naturally grows out of having a right relationship with God. It's characterized by things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. That is to say, your growth in bearing the fruit of righteousness comes, as Paul says, only through Jesus Christ. It means that you must pursue your fruit bearing in complete dependence upon Christ, but also with a humble boldness. You're humble because you cannot produce it on your own, and you're bold because you're confident in Christ that he will do it. So relating back to verse 6, we can labor to grow in doing what pleases God because we know that it is God who is ultimately doing the work in us. So we take heart in our striving, in our struggles for holiness because we know that the outcome is in God's hands. And the fact that our bearing the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ and not through our own strength or ingenuity is closely tied with the end of verse 11. Since God is the initiator, Christ is the means, and as we know elsewhere in Scripture, the Spirit is the guarantee, therefore all glory and praise go to God. That's how he ends verse 11 here. It's the answer to why you should care about all of this. 
why care as a church to abound more and more in love? Why care to increase in knowledge and discernment? Why care that you would grow in holiness and bear fruit for God? Why, why care about these things? Why not just accept your get-out-of-hell-free card from Jesus and coast through the Christian life? Well, the answer is that you should care because when you encounter the gospel in a saving way, you behold the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you're given a new desire to see God glorified in everything. So as you live a life that highlights the grace of God in the gospel, you bring glory and praise to his name. What a joy it will be when Jesus returns and gets to harvest this fruit, this fruit of righteousness among his people. Why? It's so that all can say, look what God has done. Praise his name. So bringing these things together, if we take Paul's prayer as a model for the way that we should pray, we can summarize it by saying that we should pray gospel-driven prayers. Thank God for his redemption through Christ, for the way that he's worked out that grace in his church. And pray for love, for discernment, for holiness. Trust God to supply the continued grace for the working out of his salvation in our lives. Pray with hope in the return of Christ, aiming at the glory and praise of God. But Paul's prayer provides us with more than just a model for our prayers. Based on the things that he prays for, he also gives us a window into the type of Christianity that is commendable in the sight of God. We can see in this passage of thanksgiving and prayer these things that we've highlighted. The joyful Christian partnership centers on the gospel. The Christian confidence rests upon God's faithful gospel work. That fellowship in the gospel is characterized by a deep Christian affection. And that growth in gospel love is preparation for the day of Christ. Now, if you're here with us today and this is all completely foreign to you, know that we desire for you to be brought into the same fellowship that we enjoy with God and with one another. The way that you enter gospel fellowship is through the laying down of the arms of your rebellion, your rebellion against God, through turning away from your sins and trusting in Christ, trusting yourself entirely to him believing that he died on the cross in your place for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he defeated sin and death once and for all. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile you to God and to his church. So if that's where you're at today, you're, this is new to you, you're interested in learning more, pull aside one of the elders here after the service and talk to them. I know there will be a couple up here you can pray with after the service. In Valley Bible Church, let me just say it's a joy for me to be with you this morning. I've heard from some of you over the past few days testimonies of the grace of God at work in your lives. And I praise God for that. 
may you persevere in a Godward trajectory that this church would abound more and more in love, that it would grow in understanding the things of God and, and discerning what is right and the way we should live. May you bear fruit for God through Jesus Christ, much fruit, being ready for his return and living for the glory and praise of his name. When you let the gospel and all of its implications provide the vision for your life, you can keep heading in the right direction and make real progress in the faith to the delight of our Lord Jesus. So may you press on in him that you might be pure and blameless for the great day of his coming, the, the day in which we will praise and glorify him. Let's pray together. Father, what amazing things you have accomplished through the gospel of Christ. We are entirely unworthy of your love, of your grace, of your salvation. But we rejoice so much that you have poured it out richly upon your church. Oh, Father, please continue and bring to completion the good work that you have begun in each believer here in this church would you draw any who do not yet believe to yourself and cause us to bear much fruit for your name. Make us ready for Jesus to come back. We pray it in his name. Amen.